All right, what's up, Stick Talk fam? Welcome back to a brand new episode. Uh, first thing I'm sure you've noticed is that the setup is a lot different uh, than Grand Cathedral, where we typically record our podcast. Uh, this is actually the first ever road trip episode of Stick Talk. We uh, heard Brooke was in town uh, in Fort Lauderdale, and we uh, figured we'd make the trip, do a few podcast episodes before we go back to Dubai. Uh, and so we'll just get right into it. So this is episode 17, but it's really episode one of the road series. I think that's what we'll call it, right? The travel series. On YouTube of the we road. haven't had an internal conversation about it yet, but we'll figure it out. Uh, but we have Brooke Hidink on the show today. Appreciate you making it out here. Uh, if you guys follow us, you and if you're familiar with any of our past guests, uh, then I'm also sure you're familiar with Brooke, who crushes it in the e-commerce space, the online coaching space. Uh, and he's just been putting out a ton of content and crushing it on all facets recently. So, Brooke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, boys. Pleasure to be here. Of course, here. man. So I'm just going to settle back in. And if you could just walk us through a little bit about who you are, what you're all about, and what brings you here today. Yeah, so I am, um, my name is Brooke Henning from Toronto, Canada. So grew up most of my life. I was an athlete until 20 or so. Had pretty bad concussion problems, put an end to my hockey career. Started, um, actually was in university, ended up going to law school. Hated that. <laughs> <laughs> Dropped out in my very last semester of law school. Uh, started pursuing e-com. That took off quite quickly for me. So did that for about a year. And then I launched my coaching program in August. So kind of been, still have the e-com store, but it's very much outsourced. So I'm not involved in like the day-to-day of that. Um, and my, a lot of my time now is spent on the coaching side with uh, David, David Mendez. So sick, dude. So we'll talk a lot of business in a little bit. Uh, I just want to start with like the hockey story, right? So it sounds like you basically grew up on skates uh, in Toronto, you said? Yeah. So like I'm right outside. I'm from, um, so it's London, Ontario. So it's about an hour and a half outside of Toronto. Um, I played on a team called Elgin Middlesex Chiefs. So essentially there's London, which is like a 400,000 person city. And then there's all these little towns around London. So Elgin okay. Middlesex is like the counties around London. That was like the AAA team I played on. So I grew up... Um, I played up here most of the time, so Bo, Har- Bo Horvat, if you're familiar. Oh, yeah. Career, yeah. He was on my team growing up, um, always played spring hockey with a lot of the big names in the NHL now, um, but we'd always go to Toronto for tournaments, things like that. So, like, what was that like? You said you reached 20 and you had to kind of opt out of your hockey career because of concussions. Like, w- that had to be really difficult for you to, like, basically dedicate your whole upbringing to this one thing, hockey, and have to give it up. Like, was yeah. that a tough decision, and, and where do you go from there? It was super tough. I think like I, I even see a lot of my friends now, like when you start so young, like at two and then you play till you're like 17, 18, 19, like hockey's your whole identity. Like that's what your whole life, your persona is based off of. So very, very hard to transition out of that. So for me, it was going from hockey player to like university student. And that's kind of like, I would say the down, down times of my life was like, I was doing school, hated it, didn't know what I was doing, didn't have hockey anymore. And that's when I decided to go to law school. So I essentially became like hockey player to Law student. <laughs> and then I guess from that, it was way easier for me to go from law student to entrepreneur because I'd already kind of gone through a transition like that. But a lot of my friends, you'll see them, they'll, uh, they're like 17, 18, and they'll just keep pursuing the hockey dream. Then they end up in Europe with like no schooling. They're making like 20, 25 grand a year, and they're, they're 26, 27 years old all of a sudden. And they have nothing to show for it. So I think I honestly got lucky when I had concussions when I did to kind of like, it was almost like I had no choice but to opt out because I could very easily fall into that trap kind of kept pursuing the dream because that's your whole identity. The longer you stick with it, the harder it ends up being when yeah, it's you said, time. To- you said you were 20 when you kind of had to hang up the, the skates. So talk us through that. Aren't, aren't most guys like at that point, you know, being drafted by NHL teams at a high level college, like where were you at 20? Were you still, were yeah. you in college playing? Were you trying to pursue like semi-pro? Like what was the, the deal there? 
Yeah. So in um, in the U.S., you guys are obviously like football, basketball. The guys who get drafted to the NBA, it's out of like D1, like NCAA D1. In Ontario, we have a league called the Ontario Hockey League, the OHL. Yep. So there's one in Ontario. There's one out west called the WHL. And there's one out east called the QMJHL, so the Quebec League. So that's where the guys get drafted to the NHL from Canada. So I was 16. I got drafted into that league. I played there for two years. And then my NHL draft year, I barely played kids of concussions. I think I played like 10 games, something like that. So I didn't get drafted at all. Um, went back for one more year had my second concussion and then I moved out east to try and play at university and had my third one and that's when I kind of called it quits. Dude what was that like like 16 years old you're probably what in high school at this point like getting drafted like obviously it wasn't like NHL but it was just the league right below like how cool of a feeling was that? Man I remember I remember to say exactly where I was it was uh yeah it was incredible like your whole life you work (laughs) for it and then Essentially, the way they did it is it's not an in-person draft, but they have it. They stream it live on your computer. So all the teams go up to the stage. They have them like on video, and then they call names. <laughs> I ended up getting picked. I think I was the last pick of the first round of the OHL draft. So above was, McDavid? No, not above <laughs> McDavid. <laughs> so he was... Uh, was McDavid in that same draft? Yeah. So he had exceptional status. So he's a year younger than me. So okay. he's a 97. I'm 96. But he was picked first overall in our year as like a exceptional size he could go in the draft a year early because yeah. how good he was yeah. yeah he played with mcdavid bro yeah all the way growing up man he was on um so how it works is like obviously hockey season from like august till april may and then you play summer hockey so summer hockey is there's no like territories you can just play on whatever team you want so there's like super teams that like all the best guys can congregate on and then you go around north america and play and there's only tournaments so it's not really a league you just go playing tournaments in the spring and summer so mcdavid was always on my spring and summer teams either he was on the same team as me a few years and then play against me other years how crazy was that just playing against him? could you tell that he was different than everybody else yeah insane like his work <laughs> ethic was insane like i remember he wouldn't uh like wouldn't ever really go out with the guys and stuff on the weekends if we went out for dinner and stuff he was just so focused um but really really nice guy but he was always another level in terms of like speed dedication just like he would lead the tournament in points like every single time. It was insane. Yeah. Dude, and just look at him now. Like, he's tearing it up. I think he's almost averaging like two points a game in the NHL, which is like basically almost like what Wayne Gretzky was doing. I think was the last one to get even close. So it's just, it's cool, man. What, like, I guess going back to like your hockey career, what was like the most memorable like experience for you from that? There's a couple. So one that stands out is when I was 10. I went to a tournament called The Brick. It's in the Edmonton Mall. So it's essentially like uh, all the best teams of like 10-year-olds go and play. The Edmonton Mall is the biggest mall in Canada. Okay. It's not like, it's kind of like the Minnesota Mall, whatever that one's called, Mall of America. It's massive. Overrated. But there's like a... <laughs> there's no, a our producer in the back, Scott's from Minnesota, so we always it? make fun of him for it. <laughs> there's, there's like a hockey rink in the Edmonton Mall. So all the best teams, the 10-year-olds from all of North America go to that. That was really cool. Um, obviously being drafted stands out. And then when I was playing in the OHL, we had a, so I'm not sure if you guys remember, but there was an outdoor winter classic. It was the Leafs and Red Wings who played at the Big M University of Michigan football stadium. So before the NHL game, the day before that, our team was Plymouth Whalers. So that's where I played in the OHL. We played the London Knights in an outdoor game in Comerica Park. It was, yeah, I think it was like 40,000 people there. We ended up winning in a shootout after (laughs) OT. What position did you play? Center and right wing. So always forward. Goal scorer. That was my strength, my shot. Yeah. yeah, that was always what I was kind of known for. That's sick. Now you're talking about the Edmonton Mall. Now you live in Dubois, so we can kind of talk about 
what that's like. And obviously the Dubai mall is different level. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where like my joke comes from. Like everyone hypes up the Minnesota, like the Minneapolis mall of America is like the biggest mall. It's so like massive. And then you go to Dubai mall and it's just like different level. Dubai overall is kind of, people always ask me like, what's it like living there? And I, the only thing I can really say is you can't really describe it until you go. And I know you've been Andre, would you kind of say the same? Like before yeah, you, before like- you went <laughs> and what you actually saw when you get there, it's like, you can't really put into words what to expect. What is it just like so massive that you can't really wrap your head? Like what is the, it's just everything. It so everything's just so nice. Like yeah. every hotel, like so clean, so organized, like everything. It's, if you imagine like a perfectly run business, Imagine that, but in a country, is how I would describe yeah. it. Like the airport, you just whiz right through. Um, when you get outside, like cabs are all like lined up. You just literally walk into a cab, pick you up. When you get to your hotel, people rush up to the door, open the door for you. Everything's just perfect. And are you living there in like an Airbnb? Did you do like a short-term lease? Like, what's the situation? Yeah. So when I got there, I rented a, an Airbnb for a week. I didn't know any buildings or anything before I left, so I ended up getting an airbnb for a week just to kind of check out the different areas and see i ended up getting an airbnb without knowing it at a place called the address so the address is like that a ch- place is sick there's a bunch of them so there's, there's a few locations yeah, right there's like there's two downtown by the yeah so for people watching if you're not familiar dubai is in the country united arab emirates so there's seven emirates and dubai is one of the seven emirates so an emirate is like a state so there's multiple like cities within dubai there's dubai downtown which is where the burj khalifa is the big mall everything like that and then there's dubai marina which is where i live but there's two addresses downtown and then there's three i believe in the marina so i ended up booking one of those loved the building so i just ended up signing a year-long lease there yeah and another big reason a lot of people move to dubai is because of the tax benefits especially if you're not in the u.s if you're coming from canada in your situation or a lot of our buddies from europe like our boy connor just moved there i guess in your situation was it hey, I'm going to move here for taxes and then you just fell in love with the place or did you fall in love with the place first and then you're like, okay, you know, with the tax benefits, it just makes too much sense? Yeah, so being from Canada, obviously we have pretty cold winters. So I always wanted to kind of move somewhere else for the winter. So I considered, I'd lived in Bali in the past. I traveled there. So I'd considered moving to Bali for the winter, but moving to Bali, there's not really any tax benefits. So it kind of just made sense that I could set up a company in Dubai. Um, there's no tax there at all. There's no personal, no corporate, no dividend. So I could set up a company there. And how it is now as of this year is I only need to be, be in Dubai 90 days a year. So three months. What? And I can't be in Canada more than six. So if you have 12 months, as long I can be in Canada for five months and 30 days. And as long as I'm in Dubai for three months, then I, I can track that. You're, like in, in, you're, you're, you're <laughs> incentivized to travel, which is yeah. sick. Okay, but yeah. if you're on your six month and first day in Canada, they're like show up at your house with like a SWAT team, like get out. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Pay up. <laughs> All that happens is like so. There's tax residency and residency. So as soon as you are in Canada more than six months here and a citizen. So if you're a citizen of Canada and there more than six months, you're a Canadian tax resident. So I can say that I'm not a Canadian tax resident. I'm a Dubai tax resident as long as I'm there under six months. So just when you file your tax returns, I don't know how they track it. Like I'm assuming they scan your passport and yeah. they know. And you that can, yeah. So and you can establish that year one or how long does it take you to establish tax residency over there? As soon as I'm there for three months. So I moved December 2nd. So uh, January, February, March 2nd. As soon as I'm there 90 days, I'm Dubai tax That's resident. That's insane. Yeah. So. Wow. That's pretty sick, dude. I'm just like processing that. So for you, like what was it like setting up like a business in another country? Like was it a pretty seamless process? Yeah. So actually Connor, he, um, 
he has an accountant who's located in Dubai. He's also Irish, but he That's helped me cool. get set up. But how, how the visa actually works is he helped me set up a company in Dubai. So I have my Dubai company. And then the reason I get my Dubai residency is because I'm an investor in my own company. So they set up a company there, which you obviously own. And then you are an investor in your own company. So you get a foreign investor visa to live there is how it works. So I set up the company before I moved. It took a couple of weeks. It's not super expensive, like five or six grand to get set up company-wise. And then I actually had to move there. They do all sorts of stuff before they give you residency. Like they do blood work. They test you for physical, like very, um, lots to do other than if you were getting it in Canada or anywhere else. Yeah. So they had to do all that stuff. And then blood you actually work? get your, yeah. What are they trying to see? Dude, it was insane. So the way it works is I walked in this building and a robot like slid up to me. In Dubai. I'm telling yes. you, bro, it's <laughs> different there. Yeah. Different. So a robot slid up to me, checked me in, and it was like, go to room three and room seven. So I had I walk in room three, and there's a guy like with the needle chair ready. Like I walk in, sit down. He takes the blood within like 30 seconds of me walking in this room. And then he's like, go to room seven. I go to room seven, and the girl has like an x-ray machine. She's literally standing there like with the coat thing you have to put on. So I put that on. I leave. And by the time I walked out of that room and got to the Uber, my blood work results were on my phone. <laughs> like in Canada, that would take like two weeks easily. It, within yeah. within five minutes, I had it done. Do they have a public health care system? Because I'm th- trying to think of like why they would do that. I, I think it's just everything. Like I said, is just extremely organized, efficient. Um, Tracked. Honestly, they track everything. Yeah. Or are you just like walking around and there's no fat people? <laughs> What's are, are they trying to like weed people? We're not going to fat shame like, on this podcast. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm are they trying to see if you have like AIDS or something? <laughs> no, no, no. Because yeah, they, they, they check that's, for that's AIDS. one too. But I'm saying if you had a public health care system. I feel like it would make more sense because then you're trying to basically weed out the people who are risky where you have to invest in them a lot. That's They're trying to check for like AIDS, like hepatitis, like that. They don't want to give you residency if you have that sort of thing. So I don't know if they have a public health care system. I know it's they have an excellent private side, kind of like the U.S. Like you yeah. can pay for someone and have like immediate service right away. I don't know what the public side's like. I just have like health care through my credit card essentially. But I didn't really look too much into that. Hopefully, I don't need it. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, they're not listening. Yeah. (laughs) The the what do they call the the leaders there? The the Emiratis. The sheiks. Yeah. The sheiks. Yeah. Yeah. The guys who walk around in white suits. Police cars actually Lambos. I mean, I'm sure there is. Like, I heard all the police cars are like mad nice. They can keep up. That's like the one thing that like everyone hears about Dubai. It's like the least relevant thing to to know about. I don't think I've ever seen a police officer there. Yeah, they're They're all plain clothes. So they don't have like police officers walking around. They're all like plain clothes. You don't yeah. really see them. It, dude, it's weird. Yeah. The reason it's so <laughs> safe is because in my area, like in Dubai, we're in 80 to 90% of the population is like expats like me, like either they're for business or they, they work there for a company. And I know they have a policy that if you do anything wrong as an expat, so if you like, I don't know, commit a crime of any sort or you get fined, you're deported immediately. So that's why it's so safe because like 90% of the population there is on like thin, thin line. If you do anything they wrong, know. you're gone. Like if yeah. they fuck up, they're done. Yeah. Is there like a, I feel like it's very tight knit and like well kept. Like, is there a nightlife scene? Like, what does it look like in terms of? I honestly haven't drank since I got there. So you can't, there's no liquor stores. Like you can't just go to the liquor store and buy a bottle of alcohol there. You can get it at the duty free when you land. But then I know, I don't know what the process is like, but you have to get a license. And then they have like underground liquor stores. So for example, yesterday I was like in an underground parking garage. And I just saw like a random door swing open on the side of the parking garage. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Walked over there and it was like a liquor store, but there's no signs or anything. 
so very they, illegal. they don't advertise it at all. No, like it's legal, oh. but they just don't like yeah. a- openly advertise it. It may be illegal to advertise. Yeah. I'm yeah. like scared to sneeze. Like, <laughs> no, it's, it's, but like the hotels are like where people go to drink. Like there's yeah. bars in every hotel because I'm pretty sure, like that's where all the clubs are too. It's really interesting. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's lots of nightlife and stuff. Like you can go order alcohol at the bar, but I know you can't like walk home fucked up. Like you can't be like stumbling on the sidewalk home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can't be like a public disturbance at no, all. No. For that reason. <laughs> no. You'll never be there. <laughs> but so but so like the so two questions. One of the the first question that comes up for me is like when I was there, I was only there for like a week and a half and the toughest thing for me was adjusting to the time zone, right? Cuz like yeah. EST is like I feel like the gold standard yeah. for business owners and entrepreneurs and what is it? Like 10 hours ahead? 9 9 hours ahead of EST. So yeah, it's it's definitely an adjustment, but I've actually learned to prefer it. So what happens is like when I wake up at 6 Dubai time. It's 9 p.m. Eastern time. So everyone's pretty much done their day. So I have from like when I get up to like 4 undisturbed. Isn't that the best? Yeah. So I can like, <laughs> I wake up usually my schedule is I like wake up at 6 or 7, do work till 10 or 11, like get a 4 or 5 hour slot in, go to the gym, chill out in the afternoon, and then I take calls from like 4 till 7 my time, which is the morning Eastern time, yep. two days a week. So I don't, like, for a while I was doing every day, but it was just, like, every single night having calls on it was just not sustainable yeah. mentally. So I just do it two days a week. I have, like, a five-hour block of calls, and I get all my calls done in two days. But other than that, I have, like, most of the day undisturbed in the night to kind of do whatever I want. So I actually like it better. Yeah. And, like, like you said, there's not those distractions, like the nightlife and drinking and alcohol, not as much as there would be in, like, Miami, say. You could definitely find lots of distractions. Like, I've heard stories of people, like, it's not a. It's not more expensive to live there than any big city in the U.S. But you could spend as much as you wanted, yeah. if like if you're not careful. But for me, I've I've just kind of stayed focused. Um, the service industry is great there, so for me, I've actually found it like a perfect place to dial in on business. You live super high quality life. Um, you can get like farm fresh food, like with like dirt still on your eggs and like raw milk delivered right to your door. That's crazy. Yeah. So I really enjoy it for business. It's just yeah. perfect. So place what does it do outside of like going to restaurants and? touring the marina like i feel like it's just like a very utopian place where there's not like you know going to play golf or doing like stuff in nature i feel like it's very there is, urban yeah. like there's what's the- there's endless things to do man so there is golf they have like a sweet top golf there um endless restaurants there's um you can go to the desert and do like desert snowboarding desert safari you can go skydiving there's like the palm the islands you can go see there's the burj khalifa the mall like there's so many things there to do that you would never really run out. Like you can go to restaurants and you're like literally under the ocean, like fish swimming around and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And like Abu Dhabi is like a 40 minute drive. And even there, you there's like Ferrari world, which I went to, which was sick. They have, um, the big mosque there that the you mo- can, oh, did yeah. you go see that? Yeah. I went to the mosque, dude, you go on, it was crazy. Like mosque, like Muslim religion, whatever, super strict under the mosque is a mall. Like under the church is like a full out mall. Really? <laughs> it was, I was shocked. What did, what did you have to wear when you went to the mosque? Uh, you, you wear- had to wear like face covering and then I had shorts on, like pretty short shorts. And so I had to cover up with like a dress. I'm pl- yeah, I haven't actually been there yet, but I'm planning to go like within the first couple of weeks when yeah. I'm back. I mean, I'm not Muslim, but it was, it was still just like the architecture and just being there is just unbelievable. Damn. Just Going back a little bit to pre-Dubai, you mentioned that after hockey, you jumped into law school, which is a pretty big commitment. Like yeah. I feel like a lot of people that we've had on this podcast that dropped out of college, they weren't really taking their education too seriously in the first place, trying to figure out like what's the easiest four year degree. And that within itself <laughs> makes it easier to kind of yeah. ditch and drop out and go on on business. But 
Well, somebody that's going to law school, that's such, you know, you're, you're probably taking out a lot of loans, I'd assume. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, how did you kind of like find it within yourself to actually move on from that? Because I'd imagine, you know, a lot of people just get in there. There's a huge financial burden. You're like, I'm going to make it work regardless. I guess what, what was going through your head at that time? Yeah, I think honestly, like I was, I was a good hockey player when I was younger. So honestly, I think the reason I even went to law school was more just like ego driven. Like I didn't want to just be in a normal degree. Like I wanted to be like kind of at the top of what I had done like I was previously. So I didn't do very well my first and second year of school. Um, and I actually applied to business school, a really good business school at Western. It's called, it's like the, probably one of the top ones in Canada. It's called Ivy, Ivy Business. I didn't get in there. So I thought like, what else can I really do here? So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term like shadow career. So I always knew ever since a young age, I wanted to do business. I didn't know what, it, I didn't, my issue was I didn't know where to start. So I knew I wanted to do business. Um, Why do you say that? Like, were there people in your life that were in business that were influences or you just kind of no. were always drawn to it? Never. Yeah. I never had any family or anything to do business at all. Just kind of, I think... Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Andy Frisella. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I was listening to his podcast like literally like right when it came out, like the MFCO wow. project it was called. Yep. So ever since then, I would always read books like Tim Ferriss, um, like the personal development stuff I was into at like 15, 16. So I always knew from that I wanted to do business, but I didn't know what that would look like. So for me, like being a corporate lawyer was like shadow for wanting to do business. Like, oh, I don't know to do business, I'll just be a corporate lawyer. So that was kind of how that started. Um, always kind of knew in my gut that it wasn't right. And how law school works is law school is three years. So in your second year, you do your law recruit to get your job. So you get the job in your second year. After your second year, you work at the firm for the summer. Then you go back for your third year, and then you go full-time at the firm you summered at previously. So I got the job in second year at a really good firm in Toronto on Bay Street as a corporate lawyer. I did the summer, and I can kind of see what these people's lives look like. So we have, like, essentially, if you think of a Slack for the firm, you can see when people are online and stuff. All the people were, like, working every night till 10 p.m. And not, like, making good money, but, like, no life whatsoever. So I kind of saw that, um, and that kind of reaffirmed that, like, this isn't really what I want to do. And after that summer, there was a six-week gap between that summer finishing as a law student and the, my third year school starting. So I asked the firm, like, hey, I've been taking all of these loans to go to law school. Is there any way I can work during the year to stop, like, pay this back? And they said, like, no, because if we offer it to you, we'll have to offer it to all the students. So I thought, okay, like, what am I going to do? And that's when I actually started my e-com store. And it took off quite quickly. So I think in my third month, we were doing, like, 250K in sales, and I was wow. making way more from that in the third month that I was going to make as a lawyer. Third so, month? Yeah. 250K a month in your third month? Yeah. Which, wow. honestly, you, was, Were you following someone's advice or were you just yeah. freestyling? I bought like an info product. Not a great info product, but I just kind of, I honestly got a bit lucky. So to this day, the first supplier of like products, it's like saunas and stuff that I closed, that I made my first sale with, that to this day is my best supplier. So... I got lucky having them early on, and that's what allowed it to scale so quickly. So by the third or fourth month, um, I was making more from that than I was making. I was going to make from law. So I talked to my parents in like December. I said like, "Hey, I want to drop out," and they said, "No, like go back, finish your final semester. You can do it after." And I did go back for a month or two, and it was just taking up too much time, headspace. I just dropped out. I didn't even want the degree by that point, <laughs> so I just kind of went all in. Damn. Yeah. So you couldn't survive like another two months and just get the degree. <laughs> It was more like symbolic for me. Like I thought, uh, it's not like I didn't take anything in law school. Like it really helps with writing, with like structuring arguments, with like being a, a business person overall because I was working with like Critical lots of high income and stuff. Yeah. yeah, so really helpful that way. But for me, the degree was like, I didn't want to have the cop out. So if business got hard, I didn't want to have like mm. 150K a year job just sitting there That's wherever I fun. wanted. 
So I thought I've taken like the lessons from law school. I'd rather just almost symbolic for me, like is a commitment to just go all in on business. I've taken what I need from it. I don't need the piece of paper that. Yeah, and it's almost like the further you go in, the further the hole gets. Like you're just digging yourself your own grave, essentially. If you know that you don't want to do this, exactly long term. So like even another month or another year in school would have just made it that much harder to. Leave. Eats away at you when you're yeah. there. Like yeah. you know you're you know you're just doing something that's not aligned with what you want, and it kind of just eats away at you. So for me, it was just like all in on. Business. How much debt did you take on? Over 100k Canadian. Yeah, 100. Yeah, 100. You paid it off all. By now, right? Pretty much, yeah. 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 That's awesome. Dude, yeah. that's such a baller decision, though. It's like, okay, I have two or three months of law school left, and I'm not, if I want to go all in on entrepreneurship, I'm just going to cut ties and not give myself that, like, yeah. safety net, essentially. That's, yeah, that's what, that was my, my that thinking. was a thought process. Yeah, it was just like, I'm going to go all in on this. And then it was like, for me, um, as you, I'm sure, know, when you don't have any choice but to make it work, you usually find a way to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I wanted to do for myself, and it turned out well. Yeah, dude. So where were most of your sales coming from in those first three months? Was it organic SEO, paid ads, paid ads cold email? And just for the audience, <laughs> just for the audience, what were you selling? What was that first product? So uh, the first product was infrared saunas for home. So between like 5 and 10K order value. But just as like slight background, like the way it works is it's, it's drop shipping, but it's high ticket drop shipping. So rather than sell like AliExpress or Barlow, we partner with brands in the U.S., that like lots of you already know, like Jacuzzi or Napoleon Grills, partner with them and then sell their stuff through our store. So then essentially we market the products, deal with the customers, they just have to manufacture and ship them. Got so it. we don't ever see the product. But that's what the business model was in the first few months was largely saunas that we sold. Um, had some success with massage chairs and home gyms as well. But I would say like 60, 70% were saunas. There may be an infrared sauna from your store on the street somewhere. I'm sure there actually is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, I'm grossly oversimplifying this, but that's one of the main things that you preach is high ticket e-com over just finding like a low ticket trendy product with decent margins, correct? Yeah. So like low ticket stuff, you can definitely make money, but it's to me, it doesn't really seem like a business. Like it's very, you're just looking for a viral product hopefully sell a bunch of it in two or three months and then you got to find the next viral product. So for us, it's more like, it's more of a business. It's a longer set of process. You have to make a corporation, get business banking, business credit cards, call suppliers, like form relationships with them. So it's, if you start a store, like with an AliExpress product, you could be running ads tomorrow. Yeah. With this, you're probably looking at like a four to five week setup process to even get the thing going. And then, but once you got to get it going, like for, for me now, like I've been making sales with my first sauna brand for like over two years consistently. We've done 100K a month with them every single month since then. Wow. So it's much more of a sustainable long-term business. And the scale is, you can scale it as high as you want. So like there are stores doing like hundreds of million dollars a year using the business model. So you can scale it as big as you want, essentially. It's much more of an actual business than like the traditional low-ticket AliExpress. And was that what the info product that you bought was predicated on, doing high-ticket e-com? Or did you just naturally it, find that yourself? It was, but it was more like... The info product I bought was more like scale your store to 50K a month and then live on a beach in Thailand. It wasn't <laughs> about actually growing it into a long-term sustainable business, but the, the basic skill set was the same. Yeah, like work with these high-end suppliers, sell expensive stuff rather than like $20 products, sell like two $3,000 items, and then build it up. And then essentially it's just like a solopreneur, get it to 5K a month and then live in like a third world country and relax. With so you food. mentioned a couple different products. Do you set up a unique store for each and every product or how's that no. work? So I have like 10,000 products in my store. So oh, I have shit. like, wow. I think now we have like 80 brands and like 10,000 products in my store. So you're essentially just like a big marketplace. Like how I describe it is if you go to Home Depot or go to Walmart, you're not buying Home Depot, Walmart products, right? 
Like you're buying brands who sell through them. Like they're the retailers for the brands. So where there's that, but online. So we're like the store who partners with the brands and we sell the brands, but we just really target like the high price point stuff. So how do you get people to find your store? And I'm assuming that a lot of it has to do with building the brand of like your brand, right? Yeah. Like making it like a Walmart kind of thing. Exactly. Well, no, like how do you differentiate it? I, I feel like no one gives question. a shit about your brand. They just find you organically through SEO, right? Yeah. Or- so your brand matters a bit, but it's easy because when pe- when you're selling brand stuff, customers already know the brands that we're partnered Got with. It. So like, for example, if you're going to buy an iPhone, you don't care whether you get it from Amazon or Best Buy. You just want the easiest way. Yeah, yeah. And the, like, in the best price, essentially. So that's what we're doing is we're just selling existing brand stuff. And then we use Google and Bing to... So when you're advertising on Facebook or TikTok, you're just mar- marketing to an audience that likes XYZ or like is this age and this location. With Google and Bing, you can target search terms, like specific searches people it's are like making. It's like intent-based, right? Exactly. So we can target the exact brand names that we're selling. So if I'm selling a Ford car, I can go on Google and, and target a person searching Ford car. So we can just put the product in front of them that already searching So what's the, the selling proposition to a the supplier because like you said it's intent based like they want people are already searching for these things yeah. why what is the benefit to them to come across your store instead of the supplier's store many so rather than have to hire like a whole bunch of agencies to like run their ads do their seo do their all this they just like self- an affiliate in a way almost like an affiliate but we deal with customer service okay. so a big headache for brands is they don't want to have to deal with thousands of customers so we deal with the customers we sell the products so literally all they need to do is manufacture it and ship it that's so right. you're charging more than them or the same? More. So we usually it's about a 25-30% margin. It really varies depending on the product. But for the saunas, it's 25 landed after cost gets sold in shipping. And then, yeah, so we pay them. So if you bought a $10,000 sauna, I would get $10,000. I would send 7500 to them and 2500 would be my margin. And it sounds like customer service can make or break this type of business. Because if I'm purchasing yeah. something online for five grand and I see a bad review like, oh, this person ripped me off or it didn't work, I'll spend $300 more buying the same exact product. So is that the biggest benefit for the manufacturer is just if shit does go south since it's your brand, I'm not necessarily taking the hit. It's just that person's brand. Yeah, so a bit of both. So if we treat our customers bad and you own the brand, it would reflect bad on you as well. So customer services, the way that you differentiate yourself as a high ticket e-com store is having responsive customer service. So I, if you go in my store, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, there's someone who will answer your chat right away. So you don't like, you know, on Amazon or Wayfair, like you can't really talk to someone that you speak to a robot or you can't really, they'll get back to you in two or three days on email. So we have someone literally available, like to answer your chat right away and say I'm on phone. Like you call, like we track that, like how quick are the customer services reps answering the phone? How quick are they answering chats? And we want that to be like under 20 seconds. So you get like people who answer the phone right away who will give the, the answers that you want. And then it just also comes down to like having a nice website with like good reviews, fast loading time, clear information. Like if you're buying a sauna, you want to have you want to know how big it is, you want to know what plug it is, you want to know like how what the warranty is. You have to have all that on the product page, all the information to min- minimize the questions. But if you have that, like a really nice website, information clearly laid out, good customer service reps that respond quickly, that's how you kind of like differentiate yourself from other stores selling the same yeah, stuff. Yeah, makes sense. So going back to like day one when you just started the store, did you outsource that customer service? Right away, or were you, you know, taking calls and answering chat yeah. messages in between law classes? I was taking the calls and answering the chats between law classes. Like I would like wake up in the middle of the night and like answer calls and stuff to people <laughs> in, in PST time. But I did that for two or three months. I hired, I think, in my second month, my first customer server up. But we were doing it together for a bit, and then I really stepped out of the business last summer, so like May June of twenty two, and that's when I launched my coaching program because I had all that time freed up. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, what was the decision that went into, like, okay, I've done this long enough. I've built up a track record. You're starting to build up your own brand online. Uh, like, I'm, I'm imagining people saw the success you're having with your brand, and they are asking you, like, yo, how are you doing this? Is that what triggered the coaching program? Or yeah, I'm always curious to know, because we also were in a similar space. We had an agency business. We grew it up to, like, 100K or whatever. And it just got to the point where people were asking us about the agency more than the actual services. And we're yeah. like, let's you know, help these people because yeah. we know what they're going through and how, you know, to get past this. So what was that like? Yeah. So very similar to you guys. Um, I'm not sure if you guys use info products and stuff, but like what I use for info product, like wasn't a good product. Like I think I paid like 10 K and I was just like in a 10,000 person discord with no coaching calls, like Jeez. wasn't, um, a good service and lots of people like weren't having success with it. So I had never really used social media. Like I didn't have any Twitter. I had like three posts on my personal IG. So I think I first saw, Nick and Logan, Nick Rogers, Logan Fifth, they, they're coaches in Client Ascension now. So yep. I saw their content. I started posting online. And they at the time, they didn't really have much of a coaching framework. It was more just like about your, how to build your personal brand. So as I did that, I started getting DMs and people wanting to hire me to teach them. So I was doing like one-on-one coaching with like three or four people. And it quickly became apparent like this isn't scalable at all. So that's when I actually, David had an offer, Mendez, how to launch your coaching program. I was in client ascension at the time. I was actually torn between, I, I started a Google Ads agency. I got it to like 10, 15K a month. And I was doing the coaching one-on-one with the Google Ads agency, which I was okay. in client ascension for. Um, so that, that time I had to pick one or the other. And that's when I decided to go with coaching, partnered up with David, and it's kind of been history since then. That's so cool, man. Yeah. What was that like? Um, you mentioned you had like a product that was shitty. It's interesting because ours was kind of the opposite. Like we partnered up with Daniel Colby Wizard, who yeah. had a product that like was actually really good. So was that like your main motive behind it is the education out there is, is not good. I actually have the information that can get these people results. I ha- almost have like that responsibility yeah. to go out and, and provide it. Is that the yeah. main motive, would you say? Yeah, like obviously I had lots of success my first year, but I also had like I wasted a ton of money ton of time banging my head against the wall and things and like like just stupid mistakes like as you know any business you make stupid mistakes that i didn't necessarily have to make if i had a good product a good info product with like so now what we offer is very similar to you guys like every person who comes in they have a success coach who checks with them every week there's like 10 hours of coaching calls so it's like it's not just like a facebook group it's like they act we're actually doing this with them so if they're we can stop them from making those stupid mistakes before they happen mm. and we've seen like really really good results like much higher than anyone in that other program when I had just because we're, it's actually a done with you program. It's not just essentially a it's Facebook It's not program. info and then, yeah. you know, good luck. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was talking to David in Portugal and he's like, dude, we're running this up all organically. Like we don't, like our funnel's like a Google doc. Do you want to kind of walk through <laughs> your, your marketing? Like are you even running paid ads? What's the yeah. the main acquisition so source? At this, this point, it's literally been almost strictly organic Twitter. So, like David said, we've tried other things. We've tried a VSL. We've tried, um, we've tried these sorts of different things, like landing page VSL. But we literally just we just do two steps a lot. Like make a power offer, DM me if you're interested, and we just send them, hey, here's the link to book a call, and then we qualify them in the in the in the Calendly questionnaire. So, like, how much do you have to invest? Um, are you ready to start today? Do you have any experience? Where are you from? In the Calendly, and then if they're not qualified, we just like cancel the call. If they're qualified, we take the call. And that's literally been the whole marketing. I've started doing YouTube and IG the last couple months. So we have started to see like, let's say 10, 15% of calls coming from those. 
but um, Twitter's, I think we're at like 41K followers, IG and YouTube are at like three. So very small scale compared, but we're actually finding that for our marketing, we would rather invest in organic. So hiring like shorts editors and like uh, YouTube editors and things like that than paid just because it might be a longer burn, but you're actually building the audience. So I saw Cole Gordon tweeted this yesterday. It was like, if you're investing in paid, it's very easy at the beginning, but your cost of acquisition will go up per call as you scale paid or organic. You have to pay a whole bunch at the beginning, but you're building the audience that will actually get cheaper the bigger the audience grows. Yeah. And you're actually building the audience itself as an asset. So if you invest 10K in editors and then you get the audience, it's not like the audience disappears. Where if you shut off paid, it's, it's done. done. Yeah. Which is super interesting because I also was, I follow Cole Gordon and we went through some of his trainings to grow client ascension. And he, was, he had this one training on like financials. And he was going through like what are healthy profit margins for a coaching program. And he was saying that like they kind of max out at like 40%. But the only ones you've seen that were at like 50 or 60% were the ones that could drive enough traffic through organic. Yeah. So like that much of a difference just because organic was built in the beginning. And so like that's I think that's so important is if you're building a coaching program or selling an offer, like invest in like you said, instead of investing in ads, invest in short form content creators or producers or editing software. Or yeah. Just making content. There's all these different intricacies. Like we're paying for this podcast to be produced. This isn't necessarily an ad, but it's it sort of is. It's building the community, right? Because then like if someone watches the pod or they watch your YouTube and they book a call they're way warmer than someone who saw an ad for the first time, yeah. right? Like yeah, they've already like a level of trust. I was watching a call recording the other day. Yeah. The guy was like, Oh yeah, what's TikTok? It's awesome. And I know Daniel and I know Andre, but it's just more familiarity. And you're, they're what's just, what's his name? Shout out to that guy. <laughs> I don't even remember the name. Terrible. It was, uh, it was, it was one of Jordan's calls though. I but the like the close rate name. would be exponentially higher with someone who's already seen your stuff. Like got to know you because even like when they watch your content, like people will say to us on the sales calls, like I feel like I already know you, yeah. and it's from the organic content. So when they book the call, they're already like across the line per se. So it's actually way easier to get that person to join than someone who just saw a paid ad and clicked book a call doesn't yeah. know you. Yeah. yeah. What's your take on giving away value? Because I know, heard me if I'm wrong, but you've given away like entire modules of your program for free on Twitter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for, I think it's. Um, for you guys, it would be different. For my take, my opinion on it is for someone who's B2C, so someone who's starting a business from scratch, like they have no business experience, mm -hmm. it's not the information that is really the differentiator. Like you can go on YouTube and get beginner dropshipping courses and like how to do what to do. For us, it's the accountability piece. So like having a success coach check in with them every week, like, hey, it's Friday. What are you doing next week? Okay, I'm going to do XYZ. Okay, next Friday, did you do XYZ? For, for me, like the... It doesn't make sense to sell the beginning steps. Like the value is in the community. It's in the accountability. Uh, it's in the one-on-one. -on -one. Like I could tell 10 people to do steps one, two, three. And then person four might have like, okay, at step two, this happened to me. What would you recommend doing here? So it's like the individual nuanced guidance. It's kind of funny how someone's paying you money and it's like on you to make sure that they're motivated. Like, shouldn't that be motivating enough? Like you just joined a $6,000 program and you're just... For the people that succeed in group coaching programs, it is. Like once they yeah. put that money in, they're all in. That's, and but that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, it should not be on the person receiving the money to motivate the student. Like, you just paid all this money. Like, you should want to work. I agree. But it's like when people are new to business, that is literally the biggest piece. They don't have, like, it's, it's not what to do. It's actually getting them to do it. And for me now, like, if I want to do something, 
like if I want to start my personal brand, like I know what to do. I know how to make tweets. I know how to go see what, what's performing, copy it. But if I pay, that's my way of making a commitment to myself. Like, okay, I'm actually going to do this now. You know? So even if I already know what to do, I'll even still do that if I want to commit to something. So I think you're right. Like it's. Yeah. Like with coaching programs too, I think the whole selling point is it's like a, a shortcut to success yeah. in a way, right? Because you've gone through the process. So you know, like when you go and try to do step four, you're probably going to run into this issue. And when you do come and talk to me about it yeah. and it's going to be different for everyone. There's always intricacies, but I feel like, yeah, they're not necessarily paying for the knowledge. They're paying for you to be right by their side as they go through and implement it. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the limiting beliefs because they just don't think something's going to work. Val validation, right? Validation. Like, things like, Hey, is this right? Yes, it's right. Okay. They feel so much better. Yeah. And I think like once they get to where you guys are at, like when you take on people who aren't starting from zero, like they already have some business of some sort and revenue at that point, to me, it makes sense to sell the information in actual like SOPs and stuff to go from five to 10 or 10 to 20. But to get from zero to five, like that stuff's already all out there, I that think. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because yeah. that's a, a, you know, something I'll push back on calls. Like if somebody's on the other end and I'm selling them on client ascension, they're like, yeah, I could just do this myself. The information's all out there. I'll walk them through maybe one or two specific scenarios just to show them how many complex situations yeah. come at scale. And that's going to be relevant to somebody who's going from one to, you know, 50. But from somebody going to zero to one, like you said, the information is pretty widely available. So I, I understand the strategy more through that lens yeah. of, hey, like I might as well give it away because the people that I want are the people that don't just want the information. They want somebody to hold them accountable and, that's and where, walk them through yeah. those complex issues. And that's where a lot of our calls come from. So I have like a free course, but under each module in the free course, it's like book a call, book a call. So maybe people go through, they see how it fits together. It makes sense to them, but they'll have a question about what niche to pick. Then they book a call and they want that individualized guidance. Like that's essentially our lead flow is they go into something free. They start. They have questions. They realize they want the shortcut, the fast, yeah. the the. Yeah, yours is really subtle. Like whenever I'm, I see your tweets, I'm like, "Where is this call to action?" It's like it's not. <laughs> it's not very obvious, but it, it's clearly working. So it's super super smart. Yeah, it's uh, it's going well. We're like our kind of next step is to build. Right now, the free course is on Kajabi, so we have like six thousand people in that. But there's not really any way, no community. So we're gonna try and move that over to school. Have cool. a free community there, so we can have more like discussions with the actual yeah. people in there. Yeah. yeah, school is sick. Another thing that I think is important there that we kind of glossed over is the reason you're able to drive everything through organic is because you have such a big, strong following. And I remember when you joined Client Ascension, I remember probably like a couple hundred or maybe yeah. like a couple thousand followers. And then like three months later, I saw one of your threads pop off. I'm like, this guy's at like fucking 20K followers yeah. already. So how were you able to grow so quickly while also moving like very intentionally and not just building like a, a big audience, but a super quality audience? I think the biggest thing for growth was honestly client ascension when we did that thread a day. Was that September? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember specifically the month, but that was, yeah. Yeah. So I wrote Recent. like a, a thread a day for like 45 days in a row or something. That really helped. And then also doing like the giveaways on two steps. So I've done a ton of those probably like two or three a week consistently for four or five months. And just between the threads and those, um, I think once you get past that first 10K, growth is quite easy as long as you're being consistent with the content. But really getting from zero to that 10K was all the threads and stuff. Yeah, people shit on giveaways, but they're brilliant. Like, right. number one, you grow your following. Number two, the people that follow you trust you for a specific topic. It's yeah. not like a platitude. Number three, you can put call to actions in the resource you give away. Yeah. You can gate the resource to get opt-ins. Like, there's a million ways <laughs> a, a giveaway yeah. benefits you. And people on the on Twitter are like, like, and DM and, like, comment shit, and I'll DM you some, like, I'm like, 
Why bro, you- it's so funny when people like meme a giveaway. It's yeah. like, why you're complaining about free information? It's like, yeah. what do you want? Yeah. I'm I, get, I mean, it is this? overplayed a little bit, but it's like the whole, it's in good, like everyone's giving away free stuff. It's like a net positive to everybody. And it's, you grow your following, man. Like, yeah. If it works, I don't really care. Like if it works, that's what matters. Yeah. Right? 100%. <laughs> Yeah, you can't give in to like the everyone's always gonna have an opinion, exactly. Right? Like yeah. people always, you know, make fun of like the guys on LinkedIn that tell like the stories that are just so like cringy, and then and the flip side, people make fun of the guys on Twitter that are giving away like free value and courses. But one of the questions I have is, uh, you have a business partner, David, who uh, we mentioned a couple times already. So talk about what that was like partnering up with someone that you've never met in person, which yeah. you told us before the podcast, which is dope. Uh, and just having like a trusted advisor that can take care of some of the different aspects of uh, running a business. Yeah. So I, I talked a bit about before, but when I started um, growing the personal brand, it was all one-on-one. So I was doing like one-on-one, like one Zoom meeting a week with people to help them grow. I didn't really have a course. I had like, I'd give them this kind of action tasks every week. Obviously not scalable. So at the time, David had an offer where he would help you launch a coaching program. So I think he had just launched Levi's uh, Erola. He had launched his. They had really good results. So I hopped on a call with him. David was also in Launch Socials at the time. So I kind of knew him a bit from that. And his offer was he would help you launch the coaching program. So I didn't really have a coaching program. It was just like consulting, essentially. So he would help you launch the coaching program. So he put together all the marketing resources to start like essentially a 55-page case study on like how I had success with e-com. Um, he would do the emails and he would do sales. So he's obviously a really good sales guy. That's his background. So he would do sales to start and then place a sales guy in the company when he would then step out. So it was a two month offer. So I think the first month we did over 200 K like way higher than either of us kind of thought. Wow. And, um, he then kind of started doing launches with other people again. And then it was pretty clear to him that it was like, when he was doing his offer, it was very tedious, like 55 page case studies, emails, sales calls. It was just for each client, right? each that client. Yeah. So really tedious. So it was clear to him that like, I think he talked to Daniel actually, Coldy Miller's there, and Daniel's like, why don't you like just run it up with Brooke and stand one thing. So essentially um, we talked and did yeah, kind of agreed to partner on long-term. So his, he's sales still, he still does sales calls. Like we've tried placing sales guys in the company and like they're, their close rates are like three times below his. So he literally just does all the sales calls. Um, he does email and he kind of helped me structure the back end, like upside. He kind of looks after like if someone has questions about um, someone's not happy with something or um, they're struggling with mindset or like he does all the customer feedback kind of thing. So customer ops side of thing. And I really just do like the content to bring in leads in the actual e-com fulfillment. So it works perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, dude, David's a fucking beast. Yeah. We, we met him out in Portugal, and you could just tell. Like, uh, he's always tweeting about being in solitude and closing, <laughs> and I've seen, I've seen him out of deals, but uh, that's not surprising that you guys weren't able to find a closer who's able to replicate his success. Um, I guess one question I, I had about that is, you know, you, David, obviously, like, the core pieces. Wh- who else have you hired there? Is it, is it still just you guys, or, like, what's kind of the org chart look like, and how do you guys plan on scaling that out? Yeah, so I have um, like an executive assistant. She's not in, she kind of helps me with everything, like my e-com, this, my personal life. Just she really takes a lot off my plate, which is huge. So she's not really on the org chart per se, but she really helps make my life a lot easier. In terms of people actually in the company, we used a content marketer for a while, like a, a ghostwriter who would like, I would just like rip a voice note to, and then he would make my voice note a thread. We did that for a while, but not anymore. Um the only people we really have other than me and David are essentially people who have gone through the program 
gotten results and we just hired them as success coaches. So we had two guys. Killer. Yeah. So they, they tried high ticket e-com. I think the highest they got was like 15, 20 K for the first five or six months. They joined, we didn't like their niche. So we started a new store from scratch and they hit like 150 K their third month or something sales. So they're both working nine to five jobs. So they, we said to them like, Hey, you guys are crushing it. Um, do you want to like quit your jobs? We'll pay you whatever a month you can do this four or five hours a day max. So they have like one-on-one calls with students and then they run their store full time. So they're doing their store success coaches. We've have three of those guys, me and David, and that's, that's it. Yeah, dude, that's such a genius, uh, model is like when you run a coaching program and you're super ingrained into like getting people results in the beginning and you build these case studies, like they'll go to war for you. Yeah, they will. And the, like we talked about that, like it's way better than hiring someone who's not, cause they're familiar with the process. Yeah. Like they've literally gone through it, have results. So they know exactly what to do to coach. And I guess I wouldn't really call it, rather than hire coaches, what we've done is e-coms a bit. I don't know if you want to say lucky, but there's there's like SEO, there's email, there's Google ads, there's Facebook ads. So rather than hire like someone and pay them 2K, 2,500 a month to run calls, we say, hey, you know your shit in email. We will make you the official agency recommendation of the program for email. Smart. You run two calls a month. You open up five one-on-one slots a week. Um, you are essentially the recommendation. So essentially, if anyone wants to hire an email marketing person, our email coach who runs calls is we'd recommend they go to so that it's almost like a lead magnet for them and we don't have to actually pay them to do it really so that's actually well. really smart dude yeah that's really smart yeah i mean similar for client ascension we had our first cohort i think back in 2021 towards the end of the year and two of the students that like really excelled in that cohort specifically ended up being like student success coaches and community yeah. managers and still to this day they're like core team members that literally go to war for us every single day and it's it's just really cool to see it's yeah it's definitely the way to hire success coaches like it's and a lot of that comes through your personal brand too just the same way someone comes into a sales call right like they're excited to work for you because they feel like they know you yeah yeah and that's yeah and that's since we've hired those guys the success coaches it's been like night and day in terms of now it's like if students are getting results on autopilot. So like I obviously make the content. I hop on a call with them when they join to like introduce myself, help them pick their niche. But um, I have like a couple hours of calls a week. But these guys are essentially meeting one on one with their students every single week, and like results are just coming in without our involvement. Which is, I think, for any business, the really cool yeah. stage to reach is when you're not in the day to day and people are still getting results. Like you built the system. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think the coolest part about a community is like when one student gets results, other students just kind of instead of being jealous, they cheer them on, like, dude, that's fucking sick. And it's, it's like a genuine excitement. Yeah. You notice like, that in your program too, like everyone hyping each other up. Yeah. So, like in the wins channel, we always like say, like, even if you don't want to do it for yourself, like just post your wins because it really motivates other people. Like, I've had so many people message me saying, like, oh, the wins channel is so motivating. Like, really needed to see this message today. So, we really kind of encourage the community aspect and that i saw you tweet about this yesterday it's like the community aspect itself becomes valuable yeah it's just like being a part of something with a whole bunch of people going through the exact same thing as yeah. you like that's yeah it's not at the i mean i'm not in sales but i'm I, I imagine a huge benefit to people joining is not even the the content the coaches it's like just surrounding yourself yeah with other people that are really driven and getting success in the agency world right yeah. What's the cliche term? Like you are who you surround yourself with, right? Yeah. You're the five. You're you're the five the people you spend the most yeah, time the, with. Yeah, average. Of, <laughs> yeah. It's so cliche. One of the questions I have, uh, just going a little bit more niche into like coaching programs and getting results and stuff like that is, and I guess you could almost relate to this to like overall business and life as well. Is like, how do you know when 
your your niche or whatever you've chosen is not actually going to pan out and you need to pivot like it sounds like in your life with hockey with law school and even with your e-commerce stores you've like been able to time the pivots really well Mm -hmm. and i'd imagine with e-commerce if you get into the wrong niche or it doesn't pan out just like if you were to spin up an ad and you see that it's not working or a cold email script that's not working like how do you know when to pivot and maybe just bring up specific scenarios or just an overall philosophy on it yeah I think from hockey to law school and law school to business was very much just like intuition following my gut. Like I knew that that was the right decision. And then just actually rather than pushing it down, like listening to that and following it Um, for e-com niche, I think you always want to, you can tell pretty quickly. So if you sell something that's been around for a long time, like grills, let's say competition in high ticket e-com doesn't occur on the product level. doesn't occur on like the grill level. So there could be a hundred grill stores, but let's say there's, uh, 50 grill brands, and let's say 45 of those 50 are on every store. If you try and sell those 45 brands, it's going to be very tough. So like everyone's selling them. But if let's say there's five new grill brands in North America, and they're only available through two or three stores. If you partner with them, you can sell that brand's products in an otherwise competitive space. But since no one's selling that brand, you can face low competition. So it's really in terms of whether the niche is going to work. It's not really niche, it's suppliers. So you got to find the good suppliers. So you find the good suppliers you'll have success but there are obviously better niches so right now like solar is a hot one like lots of people are like wanting to power their homes through solar electric vehicles electric bikes electric scooters electric mobility chairs so these are like new areas like solar and electric that there's not really much established stores right now so they're like good areas and they'll always be evolving areas like that like new hot ones to like start a store that's cool. And I guess out of those, those can come and go, right? Like I, I'm just going back to like when the hoverboards were a thing, yeah. right? Like those obviously phased out. So I guess how do you go from like finding those types of trends? Is it like reading the news, like keeping an ear to like certain magazines? Like what's yeah. the ideology there? I think just a big thing I look for is things that people need and not want. So like no one needs a hoverboard, right? It's just like they... they Dude, no, I need it, bro. <laughs> you're, you're literally staying put on the couch until you get one. You're not... Yeah, yeah I'm like, I won't get up until I get a hoverboard. Yeah. So I think just taking things people need and then applying new technology to it. So people need to power their home, right? No matter what. Mm-hmm. So then it's taking a new technology like solar and applying that to power, which is like a solar kit. Or taking a wheelchair things people need, like they can't get around, an elderly person can't get around without it, and applying electric to that. So just kind of finding like established things and then new technology being applied to this, rather than a fridge, a smart fridge, or just like, yeah, taking new technologies and applying it to things that people will always need. But I guess devil's advocate, like you don't technically need a sauna. Yeah, I was just going to say your best product is a sauna. Unless you're a Huberman type. then (laughs) (laughs) Then, yeah, so certain things people will need and other things like saunas is things like that, the top 10% of the income population is going to buy that they don't really like if we're in an economic downturn, if someone's buying a $10,000 sauna, they probably don't care. Right. So, so I guess in that way you almost want to stay away from the super trendy products because saunas have been around forever. Like rich people have been buying saunas for, you know, for decades. So is that something that you look for is like, okay, if it is a mainstay, then might as well get into it. It's tough to tell sometimes because I think like cold tubs would be trendy right now, but they also could be like a new, thing that people just want in their homes. So it's kind of like on AliExpress when you're selling like low price stuff, it is very trendy. But I don't think like there's really too many examples of like a $5,000 item that's trendy that people are only going to buy for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. I think like things like cryotherapy chambers, um, hyperbaric chambers, cold tubs, 
infrared sauna is like uh, kind of a newer thing. Like sauna's been around forever, but infrared saunas are more new. These things I think will become just more established and then they'll reach their peak and then they'll kind of just stay consistent. Would be my guess. I don't know. So have you ever applied that same methodology to a lower ticket product? Because I get hammered with ads with this one guy who's trying to wholesale Fiji water all the time. Really? But I guess like that, I guess that would follow the same methodology. The only difference is a much lower ticket product because people need water, but and you've just never gone into that realm? No, no. So I'm not sure if the model itself would work. Like if, if you partnered with brands that have low ticket stuff, I'm, I'm assuming it would. I just don't know like what kind of margins they would give you. Because if um, you're selling a $10,000 item, if you get 25, 30% margin, you're still making $2,000 profit on the sale. Where if you're selling like a $20 item, I'm not sure like what, like, you would probably have to have at least 50% for it to even make sense. Mm. And then you have to think as well, like if you're selling one $10,000 sauna, you have to deal with one customer you have to ship one order so you can do it with a small team. Like you can scale to multiple six figures with a team of like two people. Where if you're selling like $20 items, you're selling thousands of orders, thousands of yeah, customers. Like warehouse and stuff like that. Yeah, it's just a much more administratively complex. How many of your sales are B2B versus B2C for any of your products? It varies by product, but saunas is like 10, 15%. So we've had like hotels, spas, order saunas, gyms. That's cool. Yeah. So we've actually tried cold email and made sales through that, like actually doing outbound outreach. Yeah, talk about that. Like yeah. how is cold email kind of weaved into e-commerce? Because it's kind of like unheard of, I feel like. Yeah. So it was not something I had ever heard of when I was in client essential for my agency. Google Ads agency obviously learned the skill. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, like I could probably apply this to e-com. So all we do is like go on Apollo or whatever, scrape spas and gyms and then say hey um we're running a a deal for gyms we will we'll give you a promotion we'll work, we'll come install the sauna in your gym for free which is so usually if you think if you have ten thousand dollars sauna if you're going to pay five to six hundred dollars in ads to acquire the customer if you're doing cold outreach you obviously don't have to pay to acquire the customer other yeah. than like the software tech, software it's cost cheap. yeah, yeah. email is cheap so then you can then give the person you're reaching out to the same discount that you would have paid on ads to otherwise acquire them you can give them like free installation which would cost five hundred dollars as a promotion and then, yeah, so we've had success doing that. I'm not really like in the account doing it. I just do like yeah. how the team look after it, but I know sales. Has, um, ever in. since our call, has any of your students like landed a supplier from a cold email or oh, gotten yeah. sales? All the time. Like tons That's of suppliers sick. landed from it. Nice. Um, sales, I, I assume, I think a couple have, but I'm honestly not sure. When they, people post wins, they don't really say like yeah. how they got the sale. But yeah, I've had success with it, so I assume other people have as well. Yeah, I just, I'm like, I'm always fascinated by cold email offers that are. How do I word this? Not really. You don't have to really convince someone on it. Like if you cold email someone that's looking for like a, a contractor that's looking for like a new fire pit supplier, if you hit them up at the right time, they're just going to be like, yeah, let's go. Another thing right. is like when you're starting an e-com store, you don't have an email list, right? Like your email list is zero. So one kind of like gray hat way is you can just like scrape CEOs of $20 million plus companies <laughs> and just say, hey, we're, we're running a founder and CEO sale. And since you're emailing their e their business email, it's not, I know you can't email B2C emails cold. Yeah. Or it's like illegal or whatever. But if you do it to their business email, it's allowed. So you can just scrape rich people's emails and say, hey, we're running infrared sauna sale. And you have to do specifically <laughs> through cold email. Like if you tried to upload it to like, I think like MailChimp or ConvertKit or yeah. like a newsletter type software, I think it'll reject it because yeah. it asked if this person intentionally opted in, which they didn't. Mm -hmm. So you got to do cold email strategy, but it, it works. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So that's like, obviously it's not going to be, it's not going to convert as high as when you have a big Clavio list yourself. But when you're starting and you have no one on your email list, it's way better to do that than nothing. Like you said, if you have no other option, you're going to make it work. Yeah. How does an email list work for high-ticket e-com, though? Like someone buys a 10K sauna off you, like, hey, we're running a deal on our new infrared Cold sauna. Cold tub. <laughs> Buy yeah. another 10K, like so cross-selling. Big things like Black Friday and stuff, 
will do well. Or a lot of times the buying cycle is long. So if you go to my website, usually we say like $100 off, give your email. So get your email. And then maybe you're not ready to buy right away, but you have your coupon. Then maybe you decide to buy next month. Okay. So it's we more so like capturing leads that would have otherwise been lost. Instead exactly. Of but, yeah, because yeah, it's probably not often someone just goes on your website, sees a sauna, and it's like, cool, I'm going to buy this no, today. It's like 10 plus days. Yeah. Another thing is affiliates. So if you buy a $10,000 sauna after in our post-purchase email flow, we'll be like, hey, um, thanks for buy buying from us. Here's your affiliate link. So if you know anyone else who buys a $10,000, we'll give you 10%. So you make a thousand bucks. For nice. So that's another good way to use email. That's got rich people door knocking. <laughs> Need a sauna? Do you ever Come try for mine. like complimentary products? Like if you're selling a sauna, like I don't know, eucalyptics and shit, and like cold rocks. tub. I yeah. feel like a cold tub would be yeah. super relevant. You I have a sauna, hop in the cold tub. I haven't done too much of it. Like what we do for upsells is we make a lot on extended warranty. So like let's say you buy a sauna and the warranty from the manufacturer is five years, we will be like we'll give you an extra year warranty for three hundred bucks. So then you get a six year warranty instead of a five year. Mm -hmm. And then we just do that ourselves. So if a, it's for parts. So let's say the heater breaks, we'll just give you a new heater for like 50 bucks. Nice. So you, we make a lot on like um, extended warranty upsells. But I know there are more established stores. Like mine's only under two years. But I've seen stores who sell like workout stuff. They go into the supplement space. So they'll sell supplements like with their workout stuff. So there's definitely opportunity there. For saunas, you could do like robes, towels, um, lights. Like I'm not sure what else. But there's definitely opportunity. I just haven't tried much yet. Super interesting. Just to kind of wrap things up, I think we're over an hour already. This conversation has flown by. It has. Yeah. Uh, he's got to catch a flight back to Dubai in a, in a couple hours here, so we don't want to hold him up. I wish I could go with you, bro. You guys got to come visit. <laughs> Just Any, hop anytime. on the flight. <laughs> I'm down. Uh, leave your girlfriend here, bro. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh, just to wrap, like, what's next for you? Like, obviously, you're having so much success with the store. I think you said you got up to, like, 15 million. In five, sales? Five, five, mil five, five in million the first sales? year and a half, yeah. In a year and a half? Yeah. Wow. It's <laughs> yeah. crazy, dude. And obviously, the coaching program is taking off, and you're having a lot of success there. So, like, what does the next year look like for you? Yeah. So, continue growing the store. Like, I'm largely out of that. So, still oversee everything. But I want to continue growing that for... With an e-com store, if you ever sell it, the longer you have it, the higher multiple you'll get. Just they want to see consistent growth, like, over years. So, I want to grow that for another two or three years. I'll probably eventually exit from it. But just continuing to add new brands, add more ads and stuff, it's not really me doing it, it's my team doing that. My time's on the coaching program, so our, our strategy with the coaching program is we just want to focus on the road right in front of us, which is we just want to get the people actually in the program now as, as high results as we can. And then eventually we'll offer like a back-end offer for a higher tier. So our offer is pretty much get them from zero to 10K a month profit in the first six months is what we want to do. So once we get them to there, it hasn't been six months yet, so when that point comes, We'll probably have a higher tier mastermind to go from like 10 to 20, 30, 50, whatever it is. Um, but also, you've seen like Amon and a lot of the guys, they'll build the customer list in the course and then they'll sell the SaaS to the customer list. So I'm not sure if there's any SaaS opportunities in the high ticket e commerce space, but we'll definitely like look into that at yeah. some point, I would imagine. Yeah. I'd, I'd say a cool way would be to like invest in your best students, just like get equity in their store and help them out. Yeah. We've thought about that. It's just obviously like, legally complex you have to hire lawyers and like it, it could be pretty complex so we'd probably rather just do the higher tier mastermind um but yeah definitely yeah. want to invest in their success and obviously there's no easier person to sell something to than someone you've already helped get yeah, results 100 percent. Yeah. masterminds are so genius dude yeah great way to to extend ltv uh real quick i want to go into uh so christian and i used to host a podcast like three years ago mm -hmm. and this week i was just on a walk listening back to one of our episodes and it's just funny because 
we've come a long way, obviously. Um, but we used to do this thing at the end called lightning round. And we asked some like really insightful questions. And looking back now, like those were some of like the best moments from our podcast. And so Christian, I don't know if you remember any of the questions, but by heart, bro. Yeah, by heart. Okay, cool. Dan, if you have any cool questions you want to ask, feel free to join in or this will be an experience. I'll just ask one pre lightning round question. Yeah. When did you get the watch? The thing's a beauty. Watch? Yeah. Andre, do you have the same one as me? This is a this is smaller, but different dial. Same, yeah. same. I got it in um so in Canada, obviously, to take money out of my company, I had to pay tax on it. So I never got it in Canada. As soon as I moved to Dubai, I got it within the first few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, That's a, genius, a nice uh, nice housewarming present for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> All right, that was my question. I'll let these guys do their lightning round. All right, if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would they be and why? Hmm, good question. Uh, dead, I would say Steve Jobs would be one. Just super, obviously, obsessive, creative guy. Um... Probably Elon Musk be up there. And who's big name in the coaching space? Who's the most successful Intel product guy you can think of? Grant Cardone. Yeah, Cardone. Grant, Grant probably, Cardone, probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy because like people would say Cole Gordon or Sam Ovens, and I think they've kind of like capped out at around thirty or forty million a year. And I'm pretty sure Cardone's like hundred plus. Yeah, it's probably like not even close. Probably With real Cardone. estate, especially. Oh, if, if his real estate, it's it. even more than that. It's crazy. He's yeah, his whole thing is just literally apply as much force as humanly possible. Yeah, like no shame, <laughs> like no shame, dude. Yeah. We're driving like you drive around Fort Lauderdale. I don't know if you've seen it, but like TEDx is on a lot of the buildings. Yeah. he owns a lot of the real estate here. I've seen it even on buses and stuff. Crazy. Dude, he's literally everywhere. <laughs> yeah, right next to the to the gym I go to. Yeah, 10x residences. <laughs> That guy's insane. Small, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's one of the questions. Another one that I remember uh, is if you could go back and, and talk to uh, the 20-year-old version of yourself where you basically had to give up basically everything you worked on for your entire childhood, which was your hockey career, and yeah. just give them a word of advice. Knowing what you know today, what might that be? Generally, like follow your gut um, and start a business and just kind of like... I think a lot of times people start in business, they want to have everything figured out before, um, like how they're going to eventually reach success. But obviously you guys know that's not how it works. The yeah. biggest thing is to just take the first step and then kind of the path, the path lights up as you start walking. So I think just start a business and just figure things out as you go and enjoy it. Yeah. Almost every single person says that is commit, then figure it out. Yeah. Whereas most people like the common, you know, urges, hey, I want to figure it all out, then I'll commit, but it's just, it doesn't work. That's why they don't commit. That's why that they want to have everything figured out before they do, and that's actually what stops them. Yep. Um, I'll let you do the last one. I like that. I always like to ask this one. Like, what's one question you have for us? Yeah. Um, what, what, what's uh, next for Klein Ascension? Where do you guys see it going the next two, three, four, five years? I mean, I have a pretty clear vision. I don't know if this is different from what we haven't really talked about it internally, to be honest, but what I always go to is, is in person. So obviously the community is amazing. It's yeah. all in Slack, which is cool. Like, and it's all on zoom calls. It's just all online. And I just think with the past two or three years of COVID and everything, we've almost gotten used to it. And until you step out is really where the real connections come from. And Scott's a great example. Our producer, he joined client Ascension and a couple of months into the program, he actually came down to Tampa to visit with a bunch of the other students. And like those few students like no like bias or anything but like i know for sure just because we had the in-person experience with them we have like closer bonds 
Yeah. And then we did the event in October with like 120 guys. And like, that was mind blowing. Like that was just like crazy to see all of these people in person. And like, I remember just be, like walking there and like people like recognizing me first. And then like a couple of the students like dabbing each other up, like they're, they already know each other. And it's just cool. Cause when your community grows, you don't really get to see like all the things that are happening behind the scenes. Like who's communicating with who, who knows who, who's working with who. Yeah. And it's just so cool in person. So creating more of those experiences. Yeah. yeah. Would it be like consistent, like every month there's a meetup or how do you envision it playing out? Yeah. I mean, I think very similar to how Cole Gordon does it, to yeah. be honest. I think he does a court and same with Sam Ovens. They do like quarterly masterminds and then almost like a Grant Cardone twist to it as well, which are like weekly workshops. So a smaller setting, you bring 10 or 20 people into a more intimate setting and make it workshop. And then you look forward to like everyone coming together for a quarterly event or a twice year or once a year event. Yeah. Yeah. The in-person is even like meeting you guys today. It's completely different yeah. than on Slack. Crazy. Yeah. 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 And it's also a weird thing that the people who showed up in person tend to work harder than the other people. Because if you're just on the outside, it can be super lonely, even if you are in a group, just because it's way easier to just be like a pessimist, like, oh, this isn't going to work out. But the moment you actually see people and meet them in person and see like, oh, they're really doing this the more it's going to motivate you to get to that next milestone, whatever that looks like for you by the next time you see them in person. So yeah, I was going to say the same exact thing, more in-person experiences and just basically the, the way that we would do that is a higher level mastermind, similar to what you guys are going to build out. Uh, but yeah, just continuing to grow that in the, the add on the upsell, not, you know, I'm, I'm a sales guy. So that's where my brain immediately goes is going to be just way more in-person interaction and higher level stuff. Cool. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, the only other thing I would say is like, we're already kind of there, but like transcending the Twitter sphere where like Klein Ascension becomes a brand known in the yeah. ovens and Cole Gordon types. I know? think it already is, man. Like yeah. it's well on its way anyway. Yeah, appreciate appreciate it, that, we man. we, we just way. started to getting uh, traffic from TikTok and YouTube ads and getting calls booked in from there and they've been good quality. Um, but it is interesting. It, it, it kind of humbles you right yeah. away. You, you need to have everything, your sales process your onboarding process and just all your ducks in a row There's, if yeah. they're coming from colder traffic. So yeah, it's yeah. another big piece too. Yeah. It's so, it's cool. It's so cool. It's like a puzzle. You have to have the traffic figured out, but then the back end fulfillment. Cause if you don't have that, it's like a seesaw, man. It's yeah, like, it is. It's, it's back and forth. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing too, is coming to peace with like, it's never going to be, you're never not going to have something to work on. Yeah. Right. It's never going to be done. <laughs> like it's always in progress. Um, last question in the lightning round. I think we shuffled around with like, maybe five or six different types of questions. The one I remember that's relevant to us is if you could put just one of your tweets on a billboard that every single person in the world would drive by and see, mm -hmm. what would be that tweet? I think it was something along the lines of if you want something in your life, it's because there's a version of you that can have it. Ooh, so yeah, like you usually don't want things unless you can somehow have it. Like there's a version of you that can have it. And it's up to you to actually become the person that can. Damn, bro, that was fun. The way you worded that, I've never heard that either. That's very yeah. I've never heard it Good. said that yeah, way, well, but wow. Well, then, yeah, that's, that's sick, stuff. dude. Okay, actually, the last question is: Where can our first off? Thank you for making the trip and being on the podcast. This was a dope experience and just cool for us to learn more about your story and everything that's happening in your world. Uh, so, where can our audience find you, follow you, and learn more about uh, potentially working with you? Yeah. So, um. E uh, Twitter and IG are at Ecom with Brooke. YouTube is Dropshipping with Brooke. And TikTok, I think, is just my name, Brooke Henning. Um, yeah, those are pretty much the main places. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a blast. Likewise, bro. Oh, Thank no, you, man. brother. Crushed it. Crushed that. <sighs>